What up, everybody? Welcome to the State of Wild, episode 15, a regular podcast, YouTube video, web series thing. As usual, we've got Corbett joining us tonight. Corbett, how are you doing, friend? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing great. Uh, what is up? How are you today? I am doing pretty well. It's been an amazing, amazing weekend. And so I'm excited to record an even better podcast uh, than pretty much anything else we've ever done. So Big claims. Big claims. And I think, I think we'll be able to back it up. Uh, so we usually do three things during our episodes, and last week we, we kind of took a, a little bit of a step away from that, and a lot of you guys seem to like that. Um, and so while the meta has shifted, we've seen a few nerfs, uh, it's only been a couple days. And so what we're going to plan to do uh, this week is you know, give the meta another week to settle before we discuss about how it might have changed thanks to the nerfs. Uh, and we're going to be doing something actually a lot of people have been asking us to do. Uh, and so we're going to do kind of a guide to deck building and deck refining today. And uh, I hope you guys kind of really enjoy. Uh, we put a lot of work into this, and so I hope you guys enjoy this. Uh, but before we get started, just a reminder to leave a like, comment, and subscribe if you guys enjoy content like this. Uh, it supports us a lot. It, it seems like a little bit, but it really does mean a lot. Um, but yeah, Corbett, you ready? Let's go ahead and get started. I'm ready. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So deck building is an extremely difficult process, I think. Um, I think both of us can agree to that, but I think there's kind of, uh, we can boil it down to three big steps when you think about kind of big picture, what does it mean to build a deck? Um, so the first thing is to kind of come up with a concept, right? What do you want to build your deck around? What do you want your deck to do? And then the second thing is, well, how do you go about actually building the deck, right? Uh, and then last but not least, once you have this deck built, kind of refining it to be its most optimal self. Okay, and so these three steps can be applied to literally any deck that you build, whether it's meant to be a new tier one meta deck or, you know, this new meme that you're brewing that you really want to, to, to win with to, you know, you know, pull off that insane combo. Make it, make it the best it can be, yeah, you know? Exactly. So what we're going to be doing today is kind of diving into these three steps uh, pretty detailed. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into the, the first concept, uh, which is actually concept right so essentially you need to identify what you want to build your deck around so what do you want to try to do okay so normally that revolves around okay there's this really really powerful card that does some broken thing okay or there's like this really powerful synergy right that's very obvious and i want to i want to build build around it and so for example that could be something as okay skull of minari cost five mana and it cheats out 40 50 mana worth of demons over the course of like four or five turns right that's that's an insanely powerful card let's build around it or you have gen and baku right very very powerful effects okay but you need to you know do some unique deck building uh, or example okay i i love ot king people love playing combo decks so let's play malagos and i want to kill people with malagos okay um or I love hitting people in the face. What's the best way to do that? And I think a lot of a lot of times these ideas can be a little bit forced, right? Uh, and so what we mean by that is Blizzard prints some pretty obviously broken cards, right? And I, I think you have yeah. plenty of examples of those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's the mechanic, uh, the, the parasitic mechanic, I think, is something that a lot of people have heard of, especially if they come from like a magic the gathering background. I'm pretty sure it's kind of, term that's common there in that play base you can probably speak more to that than i can um but yeah the parasitic mechanic is you know something where 
basically like this this is powerful thing um and you know blizzard kind of wants you to be trying it right like so they push a whole bunch of cards that work just with that uh so that can be something like galakrond right galakrond's a very like notable parasitic mechanic where you play galakrond and then you have to play all the galakrond support cards uh Cthune is another one so that's an example of like a parasitic uh, uh parasitic mechanic and those are tends to be very forced from blizzard they give you a very very clear direction on kind of where to start like what the big overall concept of a deck mm -hmm. should be um sometimes these can be a bit more subtle right they can be a pushed effect in another way right that, that isn't um yeah it doesn't have like such a cluster of cards it can be something like a i don't know dustbreaker or a, a dragon of operative mm -hmm. like very powerful dragons that kind of support you and incentivize you to build more dragon stuff in your decks yeah and i think other examples of that stuff like carnivorous keep right stuff that it's a cheap super powerful super unique effect right um i don't think we had ever seen a card similar to carnivorous cube and so when it came out people were like okay well how can we abuse this right how can we abuse this card with its really powerful effect and so therefore you had kind of cube warlock and you had like the death battle hunter in standard um but yeah. there's even things that are more subtle right stuff like oaken summons four mana gain six armor recruit a minion from your deck that's super defensive most of the time that's a super powerful effect that kind of wants to incentivize you to build, you know, around this package of cards, right? Or maybe even stuff like Raiding Party. Three mana, two to three specific kinds of cards from your deck is an insanely powerful effect, right? And it kind of pushes you to build your aggressive rogue decks around stuff like Raiding Party. Um, yeah, um, and these are, you know, these are often very clear, obvious examples that Blizzard is kind of pushing in a deliberate way. You know, they want to try and give a certain archetype, a certain type of archetype, uh, a lot of immediate support and give the players a very clear direction. Um, but the concept doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be something that Blizzard kind of wanted you to do, right? Yeah. Sometimes the concept can be something that you really want to do, something that you think that no one else has really thought of or not that many people are trying. So I think the, the, the most recent example that immediately has to pop to mind is Total Mage, yeah. right? Yeah. Total Mage is something that is super easy to miss, right? It, it's running something that doesn't look very um, very obvious <laughs> at a first glance with the Pilgrim and Potion um, kind of looping on itself over and over. And kind of the idea of that, um, it's a weird deck and it's a weird concept and trying to figure out like how do you take that loop, that, that particular kind of insane thing that you can do, and how do you turn that into an actual functioning deck? Um, so that's like the kind of concept and the idea that we're talking about. That's the starting place. And, you know, exactly where, you know, every deck has to begin like that, right? You have to begin with something that you're trying to do. And often that's, uh, you know, just some busted mechanic, like something that you think is strong or something that you think is fun um, and kind of going from there. Yeah. Okay. So now once you have what you want to build around, you have this idea in mind, then maybe comes the most challenging part, I would say, out of the three, yeah. which is actually building the deck. Um, in Wild, I think we get a little bit of... A little bit of leeway when we see new expansions and new cards to build around because we kind of have you know the benefit of having all of these established archetypes that have been decks or have been decks in the past right for the past four or five years yeah so like in in wild because um it's it's a lot different in standard right because in standard with each with each like um expansion making up a smaller percentage of the card pool mm -hmm. it means that like each individual card coming in can have a bit of a greater effect, you know, because they're just like making up a greater percentage, right? They have a bit of, of more influence. In Wild, because we have like years of info and we have like years of these established sort of archetypes about what works, what doesn't. And because the power level is also so high, it kind of means that like getting over that bar is a lot more difficult. Um, 
in terms of like lots and lots of new stuff. And so it often becomes a bit more about like finding out what works and sort of putting it in builds that have already worked previously or are currently working. Um, that isn't always the case, but in wild, it's a little bit more like that compared to standard. But like I said, you know, sometimes there's something that pops up kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, for example, like in the most recent expansion, something like Guardian Animals, right? The super powerful card that has a super strong effect. Instead of building an entire deck around Guardian Animals, kind of what happened in wild was, okay, well, the, what decks can take advantage of this broken card that already exists, right? And mm -hmm. the first thing that comes to mind is something like Jade Druid, right? And that's kind of what happened. Yeah. Uh, right before it got nerfed, sadly. Um, but I, in Wild, that's kind of what deck building kind of comes to a lot of the time. We're slotting in the correct powerful cards and it's, you know, like corresponding package of cards that come with it and making sure that you take out the correct cards. And I think that's kind of a big deal. Uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, making sure that you're cutting cards that do what this new card wanted to do but worse than the new card or maybe just kind of changing direction with your deck because of this new mm -hmm. more powerful card and then making sure you take out the cards that don't support that new archetype or that new strategy of the deck um and, and we'll talk about that a little bit later but there's also some examples of okay yes that's what's happened that's what happens in wild a lot of the time but we also have you know pretty recent examples of people building new decks from the ground up we talked a little bit about turtle mage but maybe kind of the most glaring example uh, is Darklay Warlock, right? Darklay Warlock wasn't a thing in Standard, right? And in Wild, okay, it started off as this, like, all right, we're going to build it or include it in Discard Warlock, okay? Well, let's just do Discard Warlock with a Darklay sub-theme. And then it just became this super degenerate combo deck that everybody hated, right? And But that was built completely from the ground up because that didn't, we didn't have a basis for that. We didn't have Zoo decks in Wild, and we didn't have a darkler warlock and standard that we like wanted to improve upon yeah um there's others of course like uh, like quest mage kind of popped up from nowhere last um last year um where the idea of a quest being in the tempo aggressive archetype was something that no one had ever mm -hmm. really tried and then all of a sudden it was just everywhere um <laughs> so that's another one uh you can even just go through like spell token druid that deck was very um underplayed over last expansion before the fungal fortunes nerf mm -hmm. happened um, but yeah, Token Druid, Odd Shaman is a recent one that, you know, people have kind of been building in a very new way. Uh, so yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of these shells that kind of, um, uh, where you're kind of fitting fitting in like these new powerful cards um, and that becomes one type of challenge. There is this other type, which is, you know, building things in a new original way, which I think is more the kind of thing that most players um, are kind of wanting to know about and often you know struggle with a lot because building something completely fresh and new it's really hard like it's a really hard position to get into and and you have to be like you have to have a great understanding of the general card pool a great understanding of the format as a whole and what works what doesn't and so yeah it's just a tough thing um in general i think okay so you touched on it. like people want to know how to do this so let's talk about that right mm -hmm. so when we're building this new idea or this new deck for this new idea um i think the first thing that people should be looking at is like what it, What's the direction of my deck? What do I want my deck to do, right? I want to build around this specific card, but what do I want to do with that specific card, right? So, like, one, the first question I think you want to ask is, like, do I want to build this as an aggressive deck? Do I want to build this as a control deck? Do I want to build it as a combo deck? Do I want to build it, like, as a mid-range tempo worker type? And that might seem like a very easy question to answer, but it's not always that simple, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a lot of decks that, you know, that on a first glance might become something completely different um, from where you kind of started off with, or they have the potential to go in a variety 
of you know very different directions uh, depending on what kind of like other cards you package around them. Um, an example might be, um, let's see, uh, Evolve Shaman, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe you want to do the Desert Hair Evolve package. Now you can fit that into a variety of different stuff. You can build like a very aggressive kind of lower curve list, mm -hmm. um, or you can put it in something like a Shutterwalk shell, something that has a lot more mid-range kind of game and even late game. Um, or you can do it in something like Galakrom Warrior. Galakrom Warrior, you can go in the direction of making it more aggressive with a, with a kind of a low curve pirate stuff. Or you can decide that you might want to go into a more control direction. You want to run more removal and stuff like that. And so deciding, like, once you have your idea in mind, identifying the best way to kind of move on from that idea. Like, where am I heading? I have what I want to do. Now, what's the best path that I take to get, like, to my end goal? Um, and that's, that's definitely, like, a very important part. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. And so, yeah, it's definitely the starting point. Yeah, and I think a lot of that boils down to trying to understand what your game plan is going to be in those games, right? And so um i have the super powerful card at what point in the game does it do it do its powerful thing and is that intended to be kind of the catalyst for more broken things and at that point maybe you want to go like a slower build um to so kind of support that or is it kind of like this is when i play it it's going to finish the game uh, or it should put me in such a drastically strong position that it's going to be almost impossible for me to lose at that point right and then at that point maybe yeah. you shift towards a more aggressive strategy you know to support that if that makes sense yeah um so there's the whole idea of like scalability mm -hmm. right like how like how to think scale as the game goes on um an example of this like probably the most obvious that i can think of is patches the pirate <laughs> you know it's a one one that just pops out of nowhere and to a lot of people the idea of like oh it's just a one matter one one like how like what kind of influence can that have but one matter one one on turn one Man, I said that a lot. <laughs> one mana, one one on the very first turn of the game is incredibly influential. Now, if a patch has popped out on turn seven, like it, who, who cares? Like it doesn't matter at all. Um, and so like as the turns scale, as, as you move throughout the game, what you're doing has to become more and more powerful to kind of actually be a finisher. Am I putting myself into a really winning position and identifying like, is what I'm doing early enough? Like is the powerful thing that I'm doing happening early enough? Like, is it, corresponding to the turn um, in a way that really makes sense? Um, or is it just too slow? So kind of weighing that up and sort of building in the appropriate direction. That's, uh, that's like I said, that's the first thing. I think the most obvious example of that was is the Mana Worm, right? One Mana, one three in Mage. Okay. It yeah. was one of the best one drops ever printed. And all they did was nerf it by one mana. And the fact that it goes from one mana to two mana basically killed the card. Not basically, it did kill yeah. the card. Um, and so I think that's a very obvious thing. But another example is you talked about patches, but stuff like uh, like Agridruid, right? The the whole reason Agridruid is super strong is you, you're getting out on the board really, really early. And you're, you're buffing your minions very early in the game. And so you're doing these big explosive turns where if you were doing this on turn six, turn seven, who cares, right? But you're doing it at the point where other decks, right, don't have as an explosive of an opener, or don't have the powerful ways to clear that board, and so therefore, mm -hmm. you know, you snowball your way to victory. That's that's why Agro Jude is so strong, is because it has the ability to add those plus one plus one on every minion with Mark of the Lotus or Power of the Wild super early in the game, right? Where it overwhelms the opponent, um, and so kind of jumps that power curve. Uh, and so, like you mentioned, as the turn goes on or as the turns go on, what you have to do has to be more and more powerful. Um, and it's not just about like stats on the board, but we can talk about how like removal, you know, responding is powerful. 
So we talked about Agridruid mm-hmm. being able to vomit all these stats on the board, where if you're Priest or Warlock, for example, and you have an ability to deal with that explosive opener, okay, the Agridruid doesn't scale into the late game, where the later you go, the more powerful and explosive your turns are, or you have mm-hmm. access to more tools to deal with their board, uh, which I think is also super, super important. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, like like you said, if you're like a slow warlock, um, defile. You know, defile. Like the idea of building around a defensive card is kind of maybe a strange concept, but um, defile is probably the most broken or one of the like one of the absolute best board clears in Hearthstone, and it really wants you to be kind of playing a more defensive warlock that can play a lot of greedy stuff because you can super efficiently deal with the uh, the aggressive stuff that people might have. Um, so that, that's just kind of like another idea of like what you're doing and what you're wanting to build around it can be kind of anything, right? It could be an OTK combo, it can be some broken early game thing, or it could just be a removal tool. And just having that starting point is like, uh, it can be done like however you want, really. Okay, so now that we have this idea on direction, let's start getting into more mm-hmm. archetype-specific questions. So, okay, I'm going to build the super slow Warlock deck, or I'm going to build Turtle Mage, right? For example, in Wild. So now I've looked at this list, I mapped out my game plan. All right, I have this turtle combo. I'm gonna play Polkelt so that I can get my turtle ASAP. And I can only run these three spells to make sure that my turtle is super consistent. Okay, now what? Yeah, now what? <laughs> um, that's, that's the question, right? So you have um, Turtle Mage, right? Um, it's very hard for Turtle Mage to get disrupted because you're running two copies of turtle. So it's not particularly susceptible to rat. Um, and the combo that you actually want is like at the bottom of your deck. It's in your deck, mm-hmm. right? So like they can't interact with Potion of Illusion in your deck for the most part. Um, so you feel pretty good, right? In your late game stuff, you feel like okay, if I get to my loop and stuff, if I get to my loop in my end game, I should be winning the majority of games. Which is why Turtle Mage, you know, had a fantastic matchup against something like Reno Priest. Mm-hmm. Um, is an example. It was really good as like a control killer because it had like a really uninteractive, uh, annoying combo that you really couldn't do much about. So your total mage, you have this great end game. How do I survive? That, that becomes the question, right? How like, do I get to that late game? Deck. How do I, yeah, exactly. How do I get to that? How do I survive against aggro? What am I doing to kind of get to those, that stage? And how much can I kind of afford to deck build against aggro while giving up what kind of percentage against control? So what I mean by that is like, um, I can tech as hard as I want into anti-aggro, but at some point I'm also losing out to more mid-rangey decks. I'm losing out to other other like um, slower archetypes as well. Um, so like if your entire list was nothing but removal and depth charge and doomsayer, you might be a little bit stronger into aggro in some ways, but weaker and you lose percentage against other slow decks, which does matter. You know, it's not as simple as trying to like identify your weakness and go all out to try and beat it. You want to try and do things in a little bit of a way that makes sense to try and gain the overall most percentage that you can. Um, so with Turtle Mage, like, you, you have this question of how am I surviving? And it, you can do it in a couple of ways, right? Like, um, one way that I ended up pushing towards was to try and build more of a tempo approach. Um, yeah. Turns out, like, fighting for board with, like, efficient tempo minions is just kind of a good way to fight against aggro a lot of the time as well. Um, it's not always about just running the most amount of removal that you can um, and just, like, kind of packing that in. Yeah, I, I, I will also say... A lot of classes don't have removal, like access to removal, like Warlock and Priest do, mm, yeah. right? And so instead of, you know, shoving in and trying to put in removal into, like, for example, your Hunter deck, maybe the best way to fight against aggro is to fight for tempo. And I think uh, identifying what your mm-hmm. class also does extremely well and kind of building towards the strengths of your class, I think, is also a huge part of this. Um, but then you also talked about kind of, like, 
how how can I gain an edge with my deck at the expense of other cards? I think this kind of extends even post like your core build of the deck and when you're getting to like the 26, 27, 28, 29th, 30th cards of the deck. So these are like the fringe inclusions or your tech cards, for example. Um, so like while this 30th card that I'm putting in makes sense in theory, right? It contributes to my game plan, okay? Maybe it just, it doesn't scale as well as my other options, right? And so mm -hmm. it's not gaining me that much of an edge where, for example, if I put in, for example, a tech card, right? Um... It, it increases my matchup against, you know, X deck by a huge amount, and I'm not giving up a ton, you know, in like in response, right? I'm not losing a lot when I take out this 30th card. Uh, and then maybe even the, the inverse of that is true as well. So when you're looking at, okay, I'm going to put in this tech card because it destroys this one specific matchup, but at the expense, you're putting in this card that's dead against literally everything else, right? For example, like yeah. Plate Breaker is the thing that, like, jumps to mind. And so... That card doesn't do anything in any other matchup, right? And so you're losing a lot, right? Especially if your deck list is super tight when it comes to, okay, well, I gave up a lot to put in this plate breaker, and it's making mm. my deck worse. And so I think it's just, this is something that extends post-deck building and into, like, the next phase that we'll talk about in a little bit in refinement, but it's something that you can, you know, should still be keeping in mind when you're when you're in this deck building phase. Yeah, and so we're talking about kind of those, those last few slots, and so... Sometimes, though, you have to keep in mind that when you take out a specific card, um, you're also needing to look at cards that work really, really well with that card. For example, um, let's say Pre-Nerf Fungal Fortunes at 2 mana was an insanely broken card. Okay, and so I'm going to put in Fungal Fortunes into something like Jade Druid. But, you know, when I do that, minions like Vargoth or uh, Zul'Drak Witchless get a lot worse. Right, because you want as few minions in your deck as possible. But taking something out is not as simple as, all right, let me take out the Zul'Jack Ritualist. You also have to take out the Vargoth and the Double Oaken Summons. And it's a very small example of cards, but a lot of cards work in packages of cards, right? So, like, if you take out Skull of the Minari, for God knows what reason, you're taking Skull of the Minari out of your Q-Block deck, you also need to take out Void Callers and Void Lords and Gul'dans. And like, there's, there's packages of cards that work really well with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and just on the idea of, like, packages and synergistic stuff... Um, I think one of the more clear mistakes I see in deck building um, that players can tighten up a little bit is that running kind of like two very bad situational cards that don't work with much else. Mm -hmm. And then when they work together, they're pretty good. But because like they only work together and they don't really work that well separately, um, on average, they kind of don't work out that well at all. Uh, so some, there, are, there are certain effects, right, where certain cards... Uh, like kind of strong in their own, like they're good enough on their own, but then they scale really well when paired with something else. Mm -hmm. So an example of that might be like Cabal Acolyte with Wave of Apathy. Yeah. When, when you have those cards together, they're really, really powerful. Um, they're like a five mana sort of pseudo mind control, like untargeted mind control, which is fantastic. Whereas like Wave of Apathy and could still work in certain priest lists because you could use it in combination with Potion of Madness. Or Cabal Acolyte could just be used with Raise Dead. It's just like a, a you know a four mana two four Stealer minion, and those are kind of like fine by themselves. So they work incredibly well together, um, but they kind of work fine separately at the same time. Like they have other stuff that works uh, well, and they're standalone pretty strong. Um, whereas something like I don't know pint sized uh, pint sized potion, I believe is the priest yeah. card, um, and and like pint sized potion and uh, the Shadowwood Horror. You know, a two-card kind of board clear, um, which can be effective. But because both those cards 
Um, like those cards used to sometimes see play in things like Res Priest, like Big Priest. Um, and they were never that effective because like Shadowwood Horror is generally very, very bad. There's some times where it's okay in some metas, but generally very, very bad. Um, and Pine Size is also not that particularly strong, right? In that kind of big priest archetype, you're not really using it to trade or anything. You're kind of delaying not very much. And so that kind of package is a bit awkward. Another one might be like Finley Grizzled Wizard, right? <laughs> you're running these two very niche tech cards that don't work that well unless they're paired specifically together as like one-offs. Um, which is very, very different. So how kind of cards work and whether they work by themselves um, is very important, right? Like you don't generally mm -hmm. want to run two terrible cards to make a good effect. You kind of want to run two decent cards that scale really well together as well. Yeah, and sometimes it's not super obvious, right? When you're just building the deck. Sometimes things make a lot of sense in theory, but then once you actually start playing games, it, yeah. it doesn't work. And so that kind of jumps into the next segment, um, the third part, the refinement. Um, and I think there's two stages to this. And I think the first one's going to be just kind of feel of the deck. And and, yeah. uh, and it, it, this feels very theoretical because it's how you feel about the deck. But, I mean, this this comes when you take your build that you spend a lot of time and a lot of brain power working on. Um, and you take it to the ladder, right? And, and you start playing yeah. some games with the list. And, like, <laughs> I've had times where I, like, I spend 30 minutes in the deck building screen working on this beautiful masterpiece and I take it to ladder and immediately game one, I'm like, all right, this card, not good. This does not do what I want it to yeah. do. And like what you can't really get a feel for what works and what doesn't until you actually start playing games with the deck. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's why like theory crafting can be so tough as well. Yeah. Like unless you've actually kind of stepped into the ring and done it yourself. Um, it's easy to like miss exactly how good stuff is. You know, it's why reviews are so tough in general. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, Something might make a lot of sense, but once you're in in games, things just underperform, right? Yeah. Like they they do what I thought they were gonna do, right? And but that is not as good. Yeah, it's just not as good as you thought it was gonna be. Um, but also, yeah. you, it might expose. Hey, my deck has weaknesses that I thought I had addressed, or that I didn't even think about, right? Sometimes you just kind of forget mm -hmm. about some stuff, uh, and I need to address that with some changes in my deck. Um, and like I said, this is kind of very often subjective, right? This is how like you feel about the deck and how something feels um and figuring out what actually is good or not is it's kind of hard and it really is hard and it's something i've been wrong with multiple times it's something corvette's been wrong with it's every high legend player has been wrong and because it's a learning process you're playing a very small amount of games against a few specific decks and you're not seeing your entire 30 cards so it's a very small sample size it's really hard to get a proper judgment um, yeah, and, and sometimes you're like winning games not because your deck is doing what it wanted to do, but because of something else that your deck does. For example, right? Like I wanted to play with Skull of Luminari, but I'm winning because I had to file the Dark Skies, and then my opponent conceded. Right? For example. Yeah, I, I find that this this kind of like refinement stage, um, it's often like very very difficult to kind of piece together the last kind of slots that aren't core to the game mm -hmm. plan, but are kind of there as support pieces. Yeah. Um, so, well, I guess it's to kind of two ways, right? Like either, either exactly what you're saying, like you take an idea, you take it a ladder, it's a failure, it's a flop. It doesn't feel strong. It doesn't do what you wanted consistently, whatever. That's stage one. And then like the other one is where you have these last kind of um, cards that you wanted to put around the edges, right? You want to like fill, fill out the deck um, and identifying like whether they're good enough is so goddamn difficult. <laughs> like it is so tough. If it's something's like not one of the core pieces, trying to figure out exactly how helpful it is. Um, trying to imagine like if this was a different option, um, would the game have turned out differently? 
Um, because sometimes, like you're saying, you win games not because of exactly what you drew, but because of one specific card you drew, mm. right? Like, like if I draw Zephyrus um, and I clean up the opponent's board, does it really matter if I like had another card that was kind of replacement level? I don't know. And it's kind of like tough to figure out exactly what kind of impact that kind of um, those fringe cards have a lot of the time. Uh, especially as one player, you know, as one player on ladder, um, it's damn near impossible. You know, you can yeah. get a feel for something that feels particularly terrible, but when things are kind of on the fringe of almost playable, um, yeah, it's so tough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about how tough it is, but also there's sometimes where it's like super obvious what's not working yeah. or what's working in your deck, right? For example, if you're playing an aggressive archetype and you find yourself behind on board every game, like starting turn two, turn three, something's wrong, right? And you either need to be figuring out a way to get back onto board or figuring out how to change your build so that you you know, are stronger getting onto the board and maintaining your board presence, right? Um, yeah. That's just, like, one example. Uh, or, like, hey, I am playing this this Warlock deck, and I'm finding myself dead on turn four, turn five, every game. Hmm, maybe I should put in something that's you know, more anti-aggressive. Uh, yeah. or, or maybe just, like, sometimes it's as simple as maybe you're not losing the game because of certain situations, but every time I draw this one card, it's always super awkward for me to play, either... I don't have the mana, or when I do have the mana or the ability to play it, um, it just doesn't have as big as a, big of an impact that I want it to have, right? Because I imagine being able to play it on turn four every turn or every game, but I, I don't have the ability to do that, and so I find myself playing on turn six or turn seven, and it gets kind of worse when you play it on turn six or turn seven because it doesn't scale as well, right? So it, it sometimes is more obvi like obvious than, all right, I'm losing a game, but um, sometimes you have those like situational cards that like, yeah. They don't work when I wanted them to work, so they shouldn't be in the deck. Yeah, generally a good tip I find is that if a card keeps on drifting from the right side of your hand all the way to the left, uh, that's usually a pretty bad sign. Like if you keep on opting not to play a card, I understand that sometimes cards have very specific uses, but if you're finding a lot of games end up like that kind of thing happening for a specific choice, um, then yeah, that might might be a strong hint that you should be cutting it. Even, even if you're winning games, right? If you find yourself winning games yeah. and never playing this one specific card... You don't need the card. It's not helping. Right? And so yeah. maybe it's better served as something else that helps you in another matchup. Um, and I, I will say, we're, we're saying all of this, and it gets it gets easier the more you the more you play, right? The more you play Hearthstone, the more you play with that deck, it'll become more obvious, you know, what changes you want to make or what you should be making um, or anything like that. Uh, and something that kind of helps with the feelings of what should be cut or not... Um, We'll talk a little bit about kind of a data-driven approach, and I know this is Corbett's favorite topic, if you guys listened to last week. But, I mean, getting to know Corbett and talking to him, it's actually helped me when it comes to deck building, right? Um, when it comes to, okay, I want to play this one specific deck. How do... I, and I want to put a twist on it, right? I want to change it so that it's better for my meta. What cards should I be taking out? And that's kind of... Corbett has influenced me on this, but I'll let Corbett kind of take it away with this kind of data-driven approach to refinement of deck list. Well, firstly, thank you. Um, but yes, yeah, so let's jump into the uh, into all the all the data, all the fun. You know, it's everyone's favorite thing talking about all the numbers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, data data is like super important. Um, I really can't emphasize that enough. I, in wild, and like if you're coming up with your own homebrew, it can be a little bit tough because you know we don't have the bigger player base, right? <laughs> like in standard, um, kind of in standard, if you have like an established archetype in standard, 
um, it's very easy to often like go through and figure out exactly what isn't and isn't working using a tool like HS Replay. Uh, in Wild, it can be a little bit tougher because the player base is a lot smaller. Or if you're playing something that isn't an established deck, um, if you're playing something that's very new, like it's your own personal idea, not one, no one else is trying it, trying to figure out exactly how the cards are performing, it's tough to get kind of a data-driven approach, right? Your sample size is going to be small, and there's not really all that info out there. But if you do have all that info out there, there's a lot of stuff you can do when going through refining these established archetypes. Um, and it isn't, it isn't as simple as kind of going on there and filtering by drawn win rate and deciding that the lowest cards are the worst cards and they need to get cut. Um, so drawn win rate is like the gold standard stat that we have publicly available. Um, Blizzard do use like a drawn win rate stat when they're evaluating cards. They, they use a slightly altered one, which accounts for game length. Um, they've talked about that a lot. Uh, XR, <laughs> XR has noted that a few times in interviews and mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. Um, but yes, drawn win rate, all, drawn win rate is the best stat that we really have publicly. Um, but when interpreting drawn win rate, it's kind of a little bit complicated. It's not as simple, like I said, as going and seeing the worst performing drawn win rate and then you cut it. Because there's sometimes cards that affect like what the drawn win rate stat is. So a card like Polk out in Reno Priest is a, is a good example. So I go to Reno Priest on HS Replay. I look at the drawn win rate. All of a sudden, I see Lothab's right up the top. Wow, that's really good. Master Spell is like outperforming damn Northshire Cleric. That's nutty. Um, and the reason that is, is because like Polk out inflates the win rate of your higher cost cards. Yeah. So because like when you play Polk out, you win games a lot. <laughs> and Polk out will increase your chances, obviously, of drawing your high cost cards. It means that those, those high cost cards like Lothab um, are going to have like inflated performance by looking at a stat-based approach. Um, there's also other things, right? Like Oaken summons will obviously make your Vargoth look terrible, even though we, we know Oaken's itself is really good. Yeah. Or Patches will look bad, or ba Baku will look bad. Um, even with something as simple as like Christology, which is like an insanely powerful tutor effect, like it's, yeah. it's, it's one mana draw to it, fantastic. Um, that will inflate often the win rate of your one attack minions, because if you play Christology, uh, and you draw your one attack stuff, that means that you're probably winning, right? So you drew your one attack, and that means that you're more likely to win, so that kind of inflates that performance. That's something that made refining Mech Paladin a little bit tough, yeah. because a card like Annoyatron always looked really, really good, but it, it wasn't like Annoyatron was the nuts. It was more like, Christology hey, Christology is yeah. really <laughs> insane. Um, so yeah, when this card's the influence draw order and how, car how players naturally draw their cards, things get a little wonky, but data-driven approach and kind of comparing decks and stats, sorry, comparing cards and how they should about be evaluated. Um, understand that context. If you understand that context and you kind of know what you should be looking for, then yeah, data-driven stuff for the refinement is an absolute godsend and uh, a huge part of what kind of leads to these perfect 30, quote-unquote, versions of decks. Yeah, and I will say, you talk about how this is normally done with like well-established like archetypes with thousands of games on them. While not the yeah. best, you can also do this with your, your own homebrew. So if you have HS mm -hmm. Replay Premium, what you can do is like link your account. And once you have a deck list, and I think you've I think the minimum is like playing 30 games with a deck. But once you have that, you'll you're able to look at the drawn win rate of your own cards within that specific homebrew. Right? If yeah. that helps. I I, <laughs> I would say that uh, often for one person it's nearly impossible for them to actually have a sample that's reliable. Um but like like it, it's uh, until something, you're really though, getting right? to it it's is something, something but uh i would say that if you if you're very dedicated to a deck and you put in like 
a couple hundred games on it. Or if you post a list, you know, you post a list on your Twitter, a couple people net decked it or something. It doesn't have to be the most amount of games ever. Like if there's something that's really, really bad in the list, even at a couple hundred games, it'll likely look or bad right like yeah. <laughs> it'll likely look bad um but it is something that you can use uh the other stuff that you can use is also like mulligan kept rate like mm -hmm. that's the stat that you can use if you have hedges replay um so you can see like how often you're tossing a card in the mulligan that could be something that's worthwhile um in terms of data driven stuff like am i trying am i thinking in deck building that i'm keeping this card but when i get to the actual games i keep tossing it uh like is this card good in the mulligan am i like if it's not good, if it's not good enough for me to be keeping, should it even have a place in my deck? Um, but for the most part, I would suggest staying away from too much personal info on the on the drum win rate. And really, it's uh, more for kind of like the bigger the bigger um, sample list. And again, like the lack of sample does make it so hard in terms of the data driven stuff for your own home brews and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, but we've kind of talked a little bit about this. I say a little bit, but it's been a it's been a bit. We've talked a lot, a lot about kind of this approach. Uh, and so you might be saying, yeah. okay, well, you've talked a little bit about theory and what we should be doing and what we could be doing, but like, how, it's a lot harder to put that into practice. Um, and so what we actually want to talk about is a little bit of how this kind of occurred in real life just a couple weeks ago, right? Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about everybody's favorite deck, Dark Lord Warlock. And so <laughs> once we saw stuff like Flesh Giant and, um, and Raised Dead kind of spoiled... Uh, a lot of people, me specifically, were really excited to try this out and like in a zoo build, okay? And so that's kind of how Darkly Warlock started off. It was, it was like a zoo-y, self-damage style deck, okay? Uh, and then that that was the idea. That was the concept, right? And in the build, we, we slot, in, slot in all these like discard synergy cards for card draw, um, all the self-damage style effects, right? You have this package of Candorthead and the Cheap Demons, all, all these cards, right? So we have this build. We have this clear direction of how we want to build the deck. And then we take it to ladder. And we're like, okay, refinement. Well, you know, stuff like the zoo package might not be good, right? Let's put in some stuff, some more self-damage kind of effects, right? Stuff like Tour Guide. Yeah, um... So the first list that you guys saw, that was published on the 12th, right? So effectively, uh, a Chinese meta report came out and it said that, hey, Dark Lair Warlock is the best deck in the format. And a lot of the players in the other servers are like, what the hell are you talking about? This deck doesn't even exist. Um, <laughs> like, this isn't real, it can't hurt me. Little did they know. Um, but by the time we go from the 12th, we end up at this very, very established deck just a few days later. And it's really going through the process of what exactly we're talking about, where... Okay, we, we are told that this like kind of Dark Lair Flesh Giant package um, is actually really good. Mm -hmm. That's the idea, right? That's the concept. That's what we're presented with, that this thing is actually really strong. Um, so let's go from there. Okay, so what's the direction that we want to go in? Uh, the established deck that we saw from the um, meta report was, like you said, like a Zooey aggressive deck that was kind of running a Dark Lair package. Um, and so we kind of looked at that and we said basically like, hey, what if we moved into the direction of more of a combo list? what if instead of like sometimes high rolling we just like always consistently did this thing and so we moved away from zoo we cut a lot of the demons we went down to sense demons you know we we made the dark lair turn basically always happen on turn four it moved away from this high roll package and more of the centerpiece of the decks so that was a very change like a very clear shift in the direction um and then you start going through like okay is what we're doing powerful enough yes we're like vomiting out multiple eight eights 
and we can pair that with something like a load lab that's nearly impossible for the majority of decks to answer. Um, however, sometimes we, you know, we, what's our weakness, right? Like what, what is the issue that we're currently having? Um, well, sometimes like we go very low on health, but we are dead on board. Um, and that's where Broomstick comes in, mm -hmm. right? Where like you're making this big combo turn, but then you're also having immediate um, tempo on that same turn, right? You're making this big swing, but you're also denying your opponent from any sort of counter lethal. So Animated Broomstick was a new card and a very like clear, um, like like once people started putting it in the deck, it became very obvious it was powerful, but it wasn't in the initial build that we saw, yeah. which was that more discard uh, Zooey type approach. So we've kind of identified what the weakness is, what the weakness was. We've we've got our direction. We're adding in pieces that kind of fix up those weaknesses with the uh, the broomstick, and you basically end up at this very fleshed out, nearly nearly like a refined build in just like three days. And this was a very rapid process. Um, I talked about yeah. it in previous podcasts that like. I was playing Dark Lay Warlock on ladder the hour that that report was dropped. And I was like watching which player was doing different things. Like I can identify like who first did the broomstick thing. I believe that was Aiden on NA. That was the first person I saw it. And within like another hour, it was everywhere. Um, yeah. And so that's like a really, really rapid real-time example of kind of uh, that deck building all the way from the idea to direction, identifying weaknesses. And eventually we did refinement. Um, eventually from Hijo's build, which we have up here on the 15th, um, the crystallizers were cut in favor of the cult, uh, cult neophyte. Yeah. yeah, the cult neophyte was another. That was like a great refinement at the the last kind of stage, um, where we kind of was wanted to keep going and make the priest matchup better. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really good recent example of exactly how you go that full process of deck building. It's something that you know is really cool because often you don't get that entirely new archetype in wild. Yeah, so this is like like you said, a great example of this entire process that we've spent 35 minutes talking about and how it happened in the span of about a week right from theorycraft to original discard zooey deck with dark lair high roll to pure dark lair combo deck right in the span of about a week it a little bit less than that yeah. right and it was insane how rapid that happened um and i w we will point out that this was kind of like a big the reason that this refinement happened so quickly was because a huge percentage of the community was playing it right so we were able to get <laughs> yeah. insane amounts of of that information, information and refinement and discussion happening in yeah. such a short amount of time normally this doesn't happen <laughs> on the scale of time <laughs> yeah but because it was such a powerful deck we got that huge influence yeah. and it was a brand new deck um and so yeah so what we're saying this, this whole point was just so we're not kind of just talking out of our ass like this, this happens and this is how the process goes in real time um yeah but yeah i hope you guys enjoyed this this discussion about how to build a deck and uh kind of a guide to deck building um and so we are going to wrap up the episode soon, but don't worry. We haven't left out a lot of people's favorite part. We're still going to talk about our decks of the week. Um, and so this is where we talk about kind of our three decks, some off meta, some meta uh, that we've been playing or have, you know, experienced playing against um, in, in the past week. Uh, and so we've got three decks for you. For the first one, we, uh, for the first one that we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to display Hijo's rank one, uh, lpg mage uh, lpg arena mage mm -hmm. and so we talked about this kind of uh last week where lpg we felt like might have this huge kind of influx uh or rise i guess in presence um mm -hmm. post nurse because we're seeing like it has a pretty damn good matchup into priest and it has reasonable matchups into a lot of other decks now that its worst matchup dark lair had been nerfed and that's exactly what we've seen um 
I think we're still very much in the refinement phase of this deck. I, I've seen like four mm-hmm. or five different builds in the past couple of days on Twitter, right? So we're still very much in the refinement phase of this deck. Um, but yeah, I I love this deck, and I know you do too. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I know we're playing a little bit of, of different builds ourselves, but the kind of the whole point of this deck is you have insane amounts of tempo, right? And you're able to fight aggressive decks with tempo and your board clears, right? Whether it's Explosion Sheep, Flame Ward, Firebrand, Zeph, uh, all, all, all those kind of cards are very good at fighting against aggro, and you have this really, really strong win condition against Priest and stuff like Druid. Um, mm-hmm. I think LPG Mage, while it's the most expensive deck in the format by a million miles, I think it's a very, very strong deck, and it's here to stay, for sure. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Something that I played a ton of uh, around June, I believe. Um, one of my most, like, like seriously, one of the like the decks that I enjoyed the most over the past year or so. Like, it's probably my top five, top ten. I, I really like this deck, and yeah, it seems very solid. Like you said, there's still some kind of uh, refinement, maybe <laughs> a bit of differences in build going on right now after the Pilgrim nerf has happened. Um, by the way, Pilgrim still really good in this deck. I think Potion's also really good. I know that's a question that's come up a lot. Um, play those two cards, it's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, LPG Mage, really, really cool. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, we talked last week about how a Chinese meta report had come out that had labeled Odd Paladin the best deck in the format. Since then, we've seen a huge, huge rise in the amount of people that have been playing this deck on the America server. Yeah. Like, it's actually insane. Paladin went from, I think we talked about last week, 5% of the metagame, or a little bit Not less than less. that. Less than that. Less. Yeah. And I, I looked at my stats right before we came on. In the past four days, I have queued into about 15% Paladin. And so it's a very biased sample, but that's all to prove that Paladin has kind of jumped up a large, large amount in play rate. It's insane. Um, Odd Paladin, I think, didn't, you know, go through this refinement phase with the new cards uh, until just recently, just because I think a lot of people on the Americas and the EU server just kind of completely ignored the deck, right? They didn't want to play Odd Paladin with new cards, but stuff like Animated Broomstick, Tour Guide... Um, even Blessing of Authority has made its way into lists as well, um, have been yep. all insanely insanely strong of, like additions to the deck. I think the the one inclusion that's the most iffy is Blessing of Authority, just because you have very few five drops you want to play, and it's kind of deciding what the best one is. But Animated Broomstick, yeah. very, very, very good in this deck. And Tour Guide, I think we talked about this all the way back when it was released, um, yeah. that it was going to be very, very strong, but it's like now finally people are realizing it. And, you know... Okay, always corbett and i ahead of the metagame but (laughs) as always but yeah odd paladins a very very strong aggressive deck man it's i don't know people keep sleeping on stuff like this but yeah um i think i think like people didn't want to play it as much in the dark lane meta because i think that it did have a lot of problems with that Mm -hmm. matchup and and it also doesn't necessarily have the best matchup in the priest Um, nothing has a good matchup like let's be real yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like, like, yeah, maybe that's not the uh, the be all end all. Like, whether you can't be priest, that's true for a lot. Um, but yes, uh, like you said, tour guide. We we're talking about stats. Like, we went through the whole thing. Tour guide looks so busted. It's like by far and away the best card in Odd Paladin, which you know you'd expect. Uh, it's very, very strong. So Odd Paladin got a big boost in the recent expansion. Um, often in wild players, kind of need like a catalyst, right? They need like a little jab to really get started and kind of like to shift the meta again, whether it's a, a new report that comes out or whether, whether it's like something like someone just hits rank one legend. But once it happens, the uh, it's a very quick movement, it feels like. So yeah, a lot of people are playing Odd Paladin. Odd Paladin seems very, very good to me. One of the, definitely, I think, one of the better decks in the format right now. All right, I'll, I'll pose one question to you. We'll, we'll dissect Odd Paladin just a little bit. 
blessing of authority yeah. versus faceless corruptor um yeah i think what are what are your thoughts because this is your list um just gonna put that one yeah. out there but why why run blessing of authority and in what situations is that better than something like faceless corruptor well the the bad answer is well it's new so i kind of <laughs> always lean towards the new stuff but you know there, there are reasons why you want to run the authority of faceless right like faceless um can be very good against like uh, aggressive decks like other odd paladins for example where you get that immediate rush and you get to make those quick trades um but you know there are definitely situations where blessing of authority is a lot stronger like picture against a cube lock um against a cube lock like a faceless into trading into like a void lord might get eaten up by defile right yeah. you're, you're making minion, minions very weak whereas like authority can just like eat the eat the void lord by itself I uh, can keep going now plague of flames is a card we don't talk about that um <laughs> but you know there are certainly situations where making one big thing is better than making two little mid-sized thing um things um so yeah i don't know i think it's just a little bit dependent on what's in play um blessing of authority does give paladin something a little bit unique where it can go tall i also think broomstick makes faceless a little bit redundant redundancy is something that we didn't talk too much about in deck building but redundancy is also a an important thing right if you have um kind of cards competing in a very similar role that can sometimes make both of them a little bit weaker um so like with broomstick being the recovery tool and authority kind of being something a bit different that can also help but yeah i think they're relatively similar right they put similar stats on the board just kind of a preference and you know depending on what's popular i think i mean you you saying something new is why you play it, I feel like is a little bit better than the response I was gonna give because I hate seeing Blessing of Authority when I play against Odd Paladin. So for me that means Blessing of Authority is good. Um at least you have I mean that's actually a good <laughs> I think that's actually a good like barometer to use. Yeah. If your opponent does something and you go, God damn it <laughs> then it means it's probably pretty decent. Uh but yeah, so that's Odd Paladin. Uh very, very good deck. You guys should be playing it. Uh a lot of people have it legend with it, so it's definitely legend viable. Uh, and speaking yeah. of Legend Viable, uh, I'm going to let Corbett take it away with this last one. I'm going to call it off-meta, and I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I almost wanted to call it bad, but it's not because he hit rank 2 Legend with it, well, but well. I'll, I'll let him take it away with this. Well, is it not bad? I don't know. All I know is I've won a lot of games with this deck, whether I high-rolled, whether it's actually okay. I don't know. Um, but this is my Highlander Face Hunter. So basically, for me, I kind of just want to try a different approach with uh, Reno Hunter um, by abandoning the Reno. <laughs> I, I knew that like the conventional kind of Reno Hunter hadn't had the most mm -hmm. success recently. Um, sorry to the Reno Hunter <laughs> fans out there, but yes, Reno Hunter hasn't had like the a major success. So we already know that deal doesn't particularly work that well. Um, so why not try something different, right? So this is a, an approach that is very like. This is an approach that is currently seeing play in standard and has actually boosted the win rate of Highlander Hunter quite a lot, as far as I'm aware. Um, where you kind of run this like Polk Elt into Brand Top End and you just cut out all the middle cards, you're running a very aggressive list and you're kind of just making sure that you kind of curve out aggressively, push face, and then you always have kind of your brand on, on curve, um, or at least in a majority of games. Mm -hmm. So in Wild, we do pick up a few little cool things. Um, it's about nine cards different to the standard version, which is, you know, at least a little bit of a chunk. Uh, we get like Leroy, we get some really good early game beasts in, you know, Crackling, Hyena, uh, Springpaw is another one, Alley Cat. So you have like a more early game beast package. Um, and then just a little bit more reach available. So yeah, Highlander Hunter 
um <laughs> this face aggro highlander hunter um i actually felt like it was pretty good at fighting for boards surprisingly uh you might not think of it like that but you're running a lot of very efficient early game kind of cards whether it's candle shot whether you're talking about the the alley cat and the walper or the mad scientist um so i felt kind of comfortable pushing for early game tempo and then because yeah. the polk out into a lot of burst i also felt okay into rogue i played a lot of that and interesting mostly one against against like odd rogue kingsbane um which was nice and of course zephyrus can always bail you out of whatever so just draw the yellow card you're good to go but yes highlander face hunter is a really fun switch up for me because you know i don't play a lot of hunter i don't think you know a lot of people don't play a lot of hunter yeah. uh so making the climb with this deck this month was actually really sweet and uh let's try and get a completely different approach uh from what we've seen kind of from highlander hunter um in wild uh, no it was fun i enjoyed it but yeah so this is where we do a little bit of a sellout moment so you guys go and you guys net deck this list and play a ton of ga ton of games on it on ladders so we can uh, go through and start refining it, right? Yeah, <laughs> um. uh, yeah, yeah. We can get right on that. Uh, but no, if you want to play something very, very different, very off meta, that's the way to go. Would I recommend this is the climb the legend? Yeah, we'll see, we'll see. But maybe someone else can maybe someone else can replicate the success that I had. Um, we'll see. Maybe it's actually okay. Uh, but yeah, so that's gonna be it for today, guys. Uh, I hope you guys really enjoyed today's episode. It was a lot of fun, uh, you know, prepping for and talking about. And I hope you guys got a lot out of it um i and if you guys did make sure you guys you know leave a comment down below and let us know that like that you loved it yeah it's awesome uh and make sure you guys uh drop a subscription here if you guys enjoy content like this uh and because it, it supports us a lot it's awesome uh but yeah corbett thanks again for joining me man uh i really i really appreciate having you on and i, I think a lot of people do enjoy having you here as part of the podcast uh so let the people know where they can find you if they want to find you outside you know. Well, yeah. For when people ask the question, "What's your perfect Sunday?" and it's like, "Well, my perfect Sunday, you get to come record a podcast <laughs> and get me out." It's it's beautiful. Um, but so no, sappy. you you can guys. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. Um, no, you guys can find me at uh, Corbett Games on Twitter, Twitch, all that good stuff. Um, streaming, I think, at around like four p.m. Uh, Eastern time, uh, pretty much every day. So Corbett Games, Twitter, Twitch, and uh, yeah, come check it out. All right. Yeah, <laughs> and if you guys enjoyed the podcast, make sure you guys check us out on you know all your podcast distrib distribution. You know sources wherever you get it I'm, I'm talking about spotify apple all that kind of good stuff if you guys want to listen to the podcast on the game make sure you guys check us out there uh and yeah hope you guys enjoyed uh and stay safe out there and uh good luck on your climbs and all that kind of good stuff we'll see you guys next time later